You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good evening. Good to see all of you. Merry Christmas. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Niner game finished just in time for you all to get here, so very happy about that. You know, uh, several weeks ago, my wife, Cashel, and I... uh, had a big surprise, and we learned that she is with child. And uh, we're expecting our fourth sometime in the new year. Uh, Needless to say, it was a surprise, a very, very big (laughs) surprise. Am I excited? Of course I'm excited. I'm thrilled. But my initial response was more like shock. I was stunned. And the very first emotion I felt was anxiety. Anxiety. Number four, you know, I I know people who have four kids. And they tell me what it's like to have four kids. In the words of Jim Gaffigan, having four kids is like drowning in the ocean. And then someone throws you a baby. And so when I heard the news, my mind started racing. How is this kid going to survive? How are we going to survive? How are we going to parent four kids that are 13 years apart? We might have to pay for college four times. Four times? Are you kidding me? How did I feel? I felt anxious. I felt troubled. Because suddenly our future seemed much more uncertain. And going through this caused me to read the Christmas story with with new lenses, uh, because the Christmas story is all about surprising births, isn't it? And how people respond to them. And it's interesting, in our culture, we get a very sterilized view of Christmas. Uh, Whether it's the pageants you've been in, or the Christmas movies you've watched, or even some of the carols we sing, they they all give this overwhelming impression that, that Christmas is sweet. It's tranquil. It's like a a made-for-TV moment brought to you by Hallmark, right? That's that's Christmas. But but if you read the the biblical account, something that that I've been struck by this week, no one in this story is peaceful. No one is tranquil or placid. In fact, almost every person in the story is troubled, uncertain. In, In Luke 1, we read about Zechariah, and as he serves in the temple, an angel appears to him. And when Zechariah sees the angel, Luke says he's greatly troubled, and fear fell upon him. The angel tells Zechariah that he will have a son, and this son will be John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. He will prepare Israel for the coming of the promised king. How does he respond? He's troubled. Perplexed, he says, I know I'm too old to have a kid. I know my wife is. That's how I felt. I'm too old for this, God. He's perplexed. He's doubting. Fast forward in the story. When Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant, what is he? He's troubled. Perplexed. He thinks, my betrothed is pregnant. I know I'm not the dad. We've got to call this thing off. But an angel intervenes, appears to him, and says, no, stay. And he does. And interestingly, perhaps no character is more troubled, more perplexed in the story than Mary, the mother of Jesus. As we just read in Luke's gospel, that the angel, Gabriel, 
comes to Mary, sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Gabriel says, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And that's a big announcement. That's not just some generic greeting. Gabriel is telling Mary that God is with her in a unique way, that he has set her apart to accomplish his purposes in the world. So if, imagine, you know, tonight an angel shows up at your door after you finished the pie and you're kind of rubbing your eyes there on the couch and you get the knock at the door and you open it and boom, it's Gabriel. And he says, the Lord is with you. How would you feel? Would you be thrilled? Would you be flattered? My guess is you would respond just like Mary, greatly troubled, trying to discern what does this mean? Who are you? What's going on? Why are you here? What's about to happen? Gabriel tells Mary she will bear a son, and this son will be the son, the Messiah, the one the whole Old Testament anticipates, this promised king who would liberate Israel from her oppressors and, and liberate the whole world from sin and death. And how does Mary respond? She says, it's not possible. I'm a virgin. Gabriel says, Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. What does Mary say? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And I don't think Mary is brimming with confidence as she says those words. I don't think it's, well then, let it be doneth unto me according to thine word. I don't think that's what she said. Because it's clear that Mary is still perplexed, anxious, trouble. It's okay. I guess this is God's plan. And what's interesting about the story is that even as the promises come to pass, she's still perplexed, still troubled. Fast forward in the story, Joseph and Mary come to Bethlehem, as we just read. They have to stay with Joseph's relatives. The house is packed. They couldn't stay in the upstairs room. They have to stay in the downstairs room. And then Mary gives birth in this room where household animals would stay. That's where she gives birth to Jesus. And she lays him in a, in a feeding trough. And we know what happens next. The angels come, and then the shepherds come, and the shepherds come and, and, and see the baby. And, and after all that, though, after the animals, after the angels, after the, the shepherds, Luke says this, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I always thought that this was kind of like the hallmark moment in the story. Mary looks down at sweet baby Jesus who we know from every Christmas carol never cried, ever, <laughs> ever, ever. And her heart is full. She's just reflecting on the beauty of this moment. That's not the picture that Luke is painting. Mary isn't sentimental. She's treasuring this up. It really means she's bottling things up. She's guarded. She's, she's pondering what's going on, and, and we can understand why. Mary knows who the kid is. That this is God's anointed, the promised son, the deliverer of the world. She knows who he is, but where does she give birth? In the lowliest place among animals and then shepherds come? I mean, moms, did you want anyone visiting you in the delivery room? These are like grisly night guards for sheep. They show up and they want to see your kid. 
And this kid is the king. And this is a humiliating way to give birth. And, and so you can imagine Mary pondering. She's mulling things over. You ever mull things over? What on earth does this mean? God, what are you doing? She's troubled. She's uncertain. She's anxious. There's a refreshing realism to the Christmas story. It is a story filled with troubled people living in troubled times, desperately wanting God to intervene, and yet totally unclear about what he's doing. Sound familiar? That's the Christmas story. It's God's answer to our deepest hopes and our deepest fears. As we just sang in a little town of Bethlehem, I love that line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And see, that's the human condition. For, for everyone in this room, there's this low-level rattling hum of anxiety all the time. What's about to happen? Can I figure it out? Jesus is born into a nation riddled with that kind of anxiety. Israel is a nation that had suffered a long decline. It had been ruled by a series of awful kings, so awful that eventually the nation splintered. The northern half was exiled to Assyria, the southern half to, to Babylon. But, but even as the nation is regathered and, and returns, the people's plight doesn't seem to get that much better because Israel's enemies just continue to dominate them. First Babylon and then Persia and then Greece. And then when Jesus shows up, it's, it's Rome. And this was a nation that had been teetering on the verge of extinction so many times, and yet they had this hope in all of their ancient scriptures that a, that a redeemer would come. When would he come? When would he come and deliver them from their fears? That's the hope. Zechariah summed it up well. What were they hoping for in the Messiah? That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve God without fear. Finally, at last, not being afraid. That's the human condition, this low-level rattling hum and wanting to be delivered from the things we dread. It was true then, and what's interesting is it's just as true now. This sort of nonstop grinding anxiety is just endemic to the human condition. It's certainly true of our culture. You know, 100 years ago, uh, the atheist Bertrand Russell wrote a book. You might be familiar with it. It's called Why I'm Not a Christian. And went on to sell a bunch of copies, became enormously popular. But in that book, uh, Russell makes what I think is one of the worst predictions of the 20th century. One of the worst predictions. Here was Russell's theory that much of humanity's fear, fear was rooted in religion, in a, in a superstitious belief in God. And Russell theorizes that humans are afraid of the unknown, of the mysterious, and so we, we desperately want an elder brother in the sky who will take care of us. Because there's so much terror, so much unknown, we just want a dad who will look after us, a bigger brother, and so that's why we invent religions to comfort ourselves. But, but Russell calls it a craven fear. We don't need that. And he says, listen, as we progress in scientific knowledge, as we gain techno technological mastery over the world, we'll see that we don't need this God for support. We are all we need. We'll look to ourselves and our own efforts. We'll make the world a fit place to live in and our fears will subside. Here's what's so interesting about Russell's prediction. Much of what he predicted is exactly what happened. Did we grow in scientific knowledge? Astoundingly over the last hundred years. Did we grow in technical mastery over the world? We have control over the world that our ancestors couldn't have dreamed of. Has it made us less anxious? 
This is the age of anxiety. It's an epidemic. Back in 2014, a, a huge study at Penn State showed that uh, among college students, anxiety has overtaken depression as this number one diagnosis among college students for mental illness or mental health issues. And, and what's so interesting about this increasing anxiety is this. It's a paradox, right? Humans have become increasingly safer and safer, and, and yet they seem to be getting more anxious. It's called the safety paradox. And so why is that? And the irony of it is this, that science and technology actually make us more anxious. Because all of us can pull up our, our phones right now, and one author has said it's like we're connected to a digital nervous system right here. And at the, the push of a button, you can learn the worst things happening in the world right now. All the time. And we are endlessly bombarded with an array of very complicated problems and very bad news. And yet, because we're aware of them, we feel some responsibility to do something about them. And it's paralyzing. Mark Sayers calls it ambient anxiety. I love that term. It's just sort of floating, right? You ever feel that way? It's, it's like, I know I'm supposed to be worried about something, but I'm not sure what it is. That's ambient anxiety because at any moment you could find out something bad. I could pull up my inbox and there'd be a bad message waiting for me. I could pull up my social media and there'd be bad news waiting for me. I know if I pull up my news feed, there's going to be something terrible there. And it's just floating all the time. That is the spirit of our age. It is an anxious age. And so what kind of hope does Christmas offer for troubled people? Well, the first thing we can say is this, that God's solution for anxiety is the complete opposite of what the world offers us. Because the world continually bombards us with two things. Bad news and good advice. Bad news and good advice. We are constantly being aware of, you know, you can find out the five worst things that happened in the world today. That's the news cycle, right? You can find it right now. And yet we're constantly given new strategies, new ideas, new knowledge for fixing everything. And the general impression is this, that I am the general manager of the universe. And that if I just know enough and take the right steps, I can fix my life and I can fix the world. That's the, the pressure that, that we are under. And so whether the issue is getting the dream job or finding the right spouse or avoiding illness from a global pandemic or fixing the environment or ensuring that my kids turn out okay, all the answers are just out there. I just need to find them and then execute the steps rightly. But, but it is on me. It's on me. I just need to know I'm doing it right. Does that sound anxiety-inducing? It is because it's on me. And that hope for control and mastery over life, I think it's an idol that recedes with every step you take toward it. Because the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And the more you realize you need to learn. And the more things you learn, the more things you have to worry about. And the more you try to control your life, the more you're aware of the variables beyond your control. And the more you have to account for. That's not good news. God doesn't offer what the world offers. I love what the angels announce on the night of Christ's birth. What do they say to the shepherds? It's not good advice. It's not a better way to live. In fact, that's not the Christian message at all. The Christian message is good news. And the angel said to them, fear not. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
When you are fearful, what do you long for more than anything? It is not good advice. It's good news. Proverbs 12.25 says that anxiety in a person's heart weighs them down, but a good word makes them glad. When you're diagnosed with cancer, do you want good advice? Really? Eat kale. Get more treatment. Is that the cure for anxiety? No. What do you want? You want good news? The cancer is gone. 100%. It's not coming back. That's what you want. Christmas is good news. Christianity is good news. It is not five life hacks to improve your life and gain mastery. It is not, here are some tips on how to reduce anxiety. In fact, when the Bible says, fear not, it's not saying, stop being so anxious. It's saying, you don't need to fear. Not because of anything you've done, because what God has done to alleviate your fears. See, if life is a cosmic accident, then it is true. I am the general manager of the universe. I am. And ultimately, it's on me to make sure everything turns out okay. But if this world is created by a good and loving creator, God, who is invested in the world, then I can begin to look at my anxiety differently. Because according to the Bible, the deepest root of my anxiety comes from the fact that I was never meant to be in control. But I'm alienated from God. See, all humans have decided to ignore God, to turn from God, to try to assume the role of God for themselves. But we were never created to live life apart from God or try to take God's role of controlling things. And so when we do, what does it produce? It's what we have in society, crippling anxiety everywhere. Because the world is not ours to save or redeem, it's God's. We are not the general managers of the universe. God is. Here's the good news that the creator God is so invested in this world that even though we have gone astray and tried to be the general managers, he comes in to redeem us and restore us to himself. Christmas is good news of Jesus, and Jesus is the rescuer. It's important if you're investigating Christianity to get this straight. Uh, the message of Christianity is not good moral teaching. The message of Christianity is not that Jesus was some great philosopher or sage or even a teacher. Jesus is a rescuer and the Bible is a rescue story. It's a story unfolding over thousands of years of God coming to reclaim his creation and rescue it from sin and death. For hundreds of years, God had promised to bring a deliverer and he drops these little clues throughout history so we would know who he is. Genesis 3, we learn that he's a human who will crush the serpent and the forces of evil. In Genesis 12, we learn that he will come from the family of Abraham and the nation of Israel. In Genesis 49, we learn that he'll be from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, we learn that he'll be a king like David, a descendant of David. In Micah 5, we learn that he'll be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And then in Jesus, we see the fulfillment of all God's promises come true. Jesus, God's eternal son, bridges the gap between us and God. The Christian story is not God waiting for us to ascend to him. It's God descending to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It isn't humans trying to attain divinity. It's deity attaining humanity and descending. It's God coming in the flesh to bridge this infinite chasm between sinful humanity and a holy God. Jesus comes as our champion, as our representative, and he lives the perfect human life. And in doing that, he rewrites the story of humanity. 
He writes a new story of a humanity that lives fully dependent on the God who created it. And then Jesus doesn't come just to live, but to, to die. He dies and he takes the consequences of our alienation from God upon himself. He suffers the punishment our sin deserves so we don't have to bear it. Jesus exhausts the power of sin, of death. He rises to restore humanity and this world to God forevermore so that we can have an eternal life with God that starts the day we trust in him. See, that's the Christian story. It's not about us finding our way to God. It's about God finding his way to us. One of the things that drives me nuts around Christmas, drives me nuts, is to go, well, you know, the real meaning of Christmas is morality, right? You're going to hear that. The real meaning of Christmas is sharing. It's kindness. It's not. The real meaning of Christmas is not you. It's Jesus. It's Jesus coming to restore creation to God. And what it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt is that God cares more about this world and us than we could have possibly imagined. And that's the best way to live. The cure for anxiety is to trust in Jesus and experience the care of God for your life. To know that I wasn't created to live independently. I wasn't created to be the general manager of the universe. In fact, when I do, I'm just going to be paralyzed by anxiety. It's trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus and then resting in the fact that I was created to be cared for by God. That is far better than carrying the weight of the world upon ourselves. Jesus already carried that for us. And when we trust in him, we don't have to bear it anymore. Let's pray. So thank you, God, for making a way where there was no way. That even as, as we strayed from you, you sought after us. Thank you for good news for anxiety. That, that no matter how dark life gets, we know that because of Jesus, we have a firm hope that you are more invested in this world than we could possibly imagine, God. That you will fix everything broken. You will redeem everything that is lost. You will restore this world in us to you, Lord, and you will give us the happy ending we desire. You will save us from all that we dread. And Lord, would we see what a great kindness it is that you have given us in Jesus and learn to just rest in your care instead of carrying the cares of the world on ourselves. In your name, amen.